0: Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.
1: There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to Rory Sutherland's On Brand, brought to you by Alf Insight. Uh, in each episode, we'll be bringing together big names from the world of advertising, marketing and media to dissect and debate success, ingenuity, which is a word I love, and the future possibilities for our industry. And today, not before time, we're looking at the multinational Procter & Gamble, which was founded over 180 years ago, when a soap maker and candle maker went into business. It's come rather a long way since then, and is now the world's largest consumer goods company. Chances are you'll have at least one of their leading brands in your home, along with 98% of the other households in the UK. And Tom Moody is Vice President and Managing Director for Procter & Gamble in Northern Europe. So, Tom, welcome to the podcast. Pleasure to meet you. It's a joy. Well, the big story this year didn't turn out to be Brexit, which has turned out to be an economic rounding error. Um, Many people would have predicted that at the start of the year. But as John Lennon always said, life is what happens to you while you're busy making other plans. So the covid pandemic what impact did covid have on png as a business both in terms of sales operations and probably most important of all supply chains
2: yeah it's um, you know i think covid turned everybody upside down whether you were a student who was aiming to go to university uh, a household or a business uh, nobody was spared that um, disruption that we all saw for us we had to reprioritize quite significantly and we thought about three main things the first one was, how do you keep uh, all of your people safe, both physically and mentally? The second one was, how do you supply it at a massively accelerated rate? And to give you a kind of range for it, we sell in the UK about 14 items per second. And on many of those items, that would have doubled. And of course, these are important products in small but meaningful ways. So if you can't supply a house with nappies, Pampers is one of our brands, or always feminine care products, then that would be a real challenge for those people. So... We had to figure out the operational side of that. And then thirdly, as communities got turned upside down, we and all of our people want to try and do small things to help them as well. So we spent a lot of time thinking about what we could do that was useful within society at that time. So, yeah, it turned us upside down like everybody else.
1: I have to say, you know, I I occasionally and mischievously suggested we should have one evening where uh, instead of clap for the NHS, we had clap for people in grocery logistics. Because I'll be absolutely candid. I mean, when the first lockdown happened, I was—I—I I, I wasn't a hoarder, but I was kind of assuming we'd be down to kind of deciding which potato to eat in <laughs> about six weeks' hence. And I think—and this is—I mean, it, it's probably worth saying that the UK—we never give ourselves credit for anything—but the UK is astoundingly good at this um, in, in terms of retail and, and uh, grocery logistics. But apart from having to eat my second favorite breakfast cereal for about a week and a half, I didn't notice any disruption at all. The toilet paper thing was, by the way, a complete anomaly, wasn't it? It was, um, uh, are you still in that field? You are, aren't you? No, we, no, you, uh, we you, came you out, out, that out in you, the
2: UK. You, came out in the UK. We're still in, it in North America though as well. But you're no. right, you, you think about these industries and the supply chains are, in, they are incredibly complex. So most of the supply chains for um, items in the UK um, will be complex European supply chains where things are moving backwards and forwards across borders and they're designed to produce very high amounts of products and they're very sophisticated supply chains. And so um, when you see the panic buy that we saw, it's difficult to work through, but nothing's impossible either. And the industry responded really well to it. And on your thoughts of clapping, I think it's a great thing that we all feel much more positive about people who work in the front line of grocery, having come through this pandemic. and. They definitely um, wouldn't want to be clapped, but I think being recognised is important.
1: Uh, It's very interesting, isn't it? Because I think there's a fundamental problem in something to do with the narrative we tell ourselves about economics, which is uh, that the value of frontline workers has been underestimated. And it's often positioned as a left-wing, right-wing thing, but I don't think it is. I think it comes from something, some assumption about where value is created, where we probably we overvalue the you know, manufacturing and we undervalue delivery uh, uh, because in a, in a weird way, because it's so good, we don't notice it. You know, uh, I mean, nothing would make your postman more salient than if he failed to turn up randomly. But but actually, because these things actually work so astoundingly well, um, I think we grotesquely underestimate the contribution they make to overall value. That something, very fundamentally, something in the wrong place is worthless. You can have the best product in the world, but if it's not where it needs to be, it's utterly worthless. And then something about the economic narrative is wrong there, which is, um I always, think, I always think it's interesting, by the way, that the, uh, if I'm right, p is the only company to have stuck it out in the, is it the Fortune 500? Uh, so it entered in the mid-19th century and it's never left. Is that fair?
2: Yeah, we have definitely had a very long run in there. And, you know, on your first thought, I'm also completely with you. When you think how many times if the bin man didn't turn up, how long it would be before your household broke down. And it's not very many. The other one, I know you had a brilliant conversation with uh, Helen from Boots earlier in this series. And, you know, you think about the next time you get a cold and you go into Boots and you just need a sympathetic person to understandingly talk you through exactly what we're going to do with you don't get colds, presumably, like me. You go straight to man flu. Yes, I do, of course. The, the expertise that exists in um, these retailers is phenomenal, and we should be grateful for it.
1: Yeah, I do man flu is scientifically established as a fact, by the way. Uh, there is some gender difference in how we react to uh, mild coronaviruses. So, so it's not 100% mythical. So I'll just stand up for the patriarchy briefly on that one. Um, but no, I mean, I think... You see, I think the interesting thing is I call this in my book, I call this the Dorman fallacy, which is there's a very, great danger in tech. One, I think tech strangely bolsters a kind of almost Soviet belief in the possibility for centralization, that the value is created by a person at the center who decides and everybody else just performs according to instructions, okay? And tech, by creating this illusion that somehow you can have perfect information at the top. Um actually strangely fosters a kind of almost Soviet-era belief in business, in scale, centralization, and the you know the overwhelming importance of managerialism as, as a source of value creation. Whereas to be honest, I'll tell you a lovely story about this actually, talking to Alex Bachelor about a year ago. This it, this is in pure brand terms, okay? The Royal Mail looked at what determined people's attitude to Royal Mail as a brand. And far and away, the best correlating metric was how much you liked your postman, <laughs> okay? So the front, and I've always, I've wanted, I, I, one of the things I'd campaign for is, I want really good call centre staff to earn big money, okay? I don't want them measured on how many calls they answer per hour. I don't want them answered on all those tailorist metrics. Because... I had a guy here from British Gas Service Care, okay, I'll give it, you know, who sorted out our boiler, sorted out our hive because the hub had played up. Charming, really knowledgeable bloke. Um, that actually is 90% of what I pay for with service care. And an economist would say it's all about, you know, insurance against the cost of boiler repair and so forth.
0: But, you know, without bragging, I'm kind of
1: rich enough to buy a new boiler without it killing me, okay? The the reason I actually pay this money is because every time a really nice, competent guy Turns up, and I have a nice chat and give him a tenner, and I'm happy to give him the tenner because he's delivered ninety percent of the value of my service care account in that visit, and I think that under you know, I mean you know, uh, in a sense, a great waiter makes as much difference to a restaurant as a great chef once the food is of a certain quality, and our fail our, our obsession with deploying what you might call efficiency metrics. Uh, pure and simple to people who are customer-facing while while reserving all the rewards for genius, if you like, to people at the top, to the spreadsheet jockeys and the people who, let's be honest, quantify value rather than creating it. And I... And funnily enough, it's fascinating because one of the things that really appeals to me is the fact that the real survivor in the Fortune 500 is a marketing led company. And that really cheers me up. The fact that the greatest marketing, my clients at Unilever will be puking in their mouths at this point. But the greatest marketing company on the planet is also the company that survived most successfully and has adapted most successfully, by the way. And that that really cheers me up. I keep going back. I discover, you know, I always was thinking, well, doing this behavioural science stuff, I'm kind of on the cutting edge. And I realised what we're really doing is discovering stuff that people like Roe Alderson and Drucker were really talking about in the 1950s, which is we need a marketing-led appreciation or viewpoint on the creation of value and utility instead of having an idea of utility which is led by manufacturing and then having a little idea on the extra utility added by marketing we'll never win that battle you need actually to start human customer perception first and work out how value is created from there and I suspect you know you're one of three or four large companies which does that best really are you a lifer? You're, you're presumably a PNG lifer. Everybody is, I'm
2: always told. I, am, I I always like the inference that goes with it when somebody says you're a lifer as well, which is the kind of the implication that you must strongly lack imagination. But I am a lifer with p for the simple reason that um, every few years they move me to a new challenge, which I enjoy even more than the last one. But, you know, <laughs> to where you just were as well on... Um, Totally, you, know, I'm, I'm,
1: I'm an Ogilvy lifer, so you, there's no. Don't worry, we're, in I'm good, we're in good hands. With, yeah, we're good hands.
2: Yeah. <laughs> the um, you know, to, to your comment on you know what makes a company endure for that amount of time in the fortune, I think it's being really clear on the fact that um, the leaders aren't the boss; the consumer is the boss, which is is an expression of one of our CEOs, which I really enjoy. But we really, really live. Mm. There's um. You know, one of the little known facts is we do a lot of the global innovation from the UK, including one of the ones that we do here is uh, Gillette. We have a an amazing facility in Reading, which is the, the global R&D centre. And they, um, every day they have men who come in and shave in front of a one way mirror. And people hear that. And they say, come on, Tom, you're joking. Like, Surely by now you've seen enough men shave that you've broadly got the hang of it. And you say, no, like every day we can learn something new from watching these guys shave. And Reading is the place where they discovered that the place that most men miss is right underneath their nose. And what we were doing is creating this razor which got closer and closer shave by putting blades on the back of it. And then we realized that men were missing a bit under their nose. And that's why on the back of the razor that you use, there is a single blade for getting just underneath your nose. And that comes from obsessively observing consumers every day until eventually you go, hang on, we can, we can do something different here. And that's how innovation is born. And it, it, exactly to your point, those are our amazing uh, research and development people. They're the ones who are doing the real work, not me sitting here with a spreadsheet.
1: If I'm right, it's something like you, you actually put something like a billion into the development cost of uh, the latest razor.
2: Is that right? The most the most amazing fact is um, before we'll launch something, it has to have a two-to-one preference about whatever it came whatever came before it. Which is an incredible bar to set yourself you know oh. you normally would say if i can make the product five percent better i'm yeah. going on gillette we work on a two to one preference ratio so um yeah those things technically are extremely performant
1: Interesting. are you how frightened are you by the subscription model with razors does the harry's razor stroke dollar shave
2: club thing scare you a little bit i think there are a couple of aspects of that i mean of course the predictable thing that i'm going to say is all competition are welcome but genuinely Competition is a good thing because it makes everybody. is bad when I'm talking about Gillette. It makes everybody sharper. So competition is always a good thing. On you know subscription per se, rather than you know just on your Harry's point, I I have my doubts on subscription models. Um, we actually do run some, so we run some direct consumer models on subscription basis. But if you think about your house and you think about say a uh, hundred items that come into your house per week, maybe. 80 of them with a the grocery shop and then another 20 through, you know, whatever else you're buying. Yeah. Um, if you think about a subscription model and extend it all the way to the end, we're going to say, right, okay, on, on Monday morning, you're going to be outside your house in some sort of a high vis jacket, kind of air traffic controller esque waving through 80 different delivery people. I go, like, is that really where the world's going to end? I don't think so. I don't because, and, and back to the thought of you have to be led by the consumer. I don't think that's consumer led. I think, um, some form of aggregation is logical, and that's why I still think um, all of the supermarkets, or a Boots, or an Amazon, are all going to play a very big role in the UK for you know a long period of time. Even if we're the most developed e market in the world, and and we are one of the most developed markets in the world, I still think there's a big role for aggregation rather than just direct consumer. Uh-
1: I think your observation that if that that there's now a ceiling on online commerce because it turns your home into a distribution hub, as you quite rightly said, where you know the endless noise of beeping reversing vans. It's also, by the way, environmentally unsustainable just in terms of the volume of traffic it creates, unless we have some kind of aggregation. And my hunch is that oddly. And of course, this year won't be a representative year. So the data will tell us nothing. But actually, online shopping may actually cap out at Christmas before it it stops growing elsewhere for the simple reason that there's a cognitive maximum to the number of things you can be expecting at any one time. You know, apart from the else it's simply cognitively difficult which is hold on you know does this arrive on Cardo are coming on wednesday then I'm, i think i paid for next day delivery on that so it should arrive on thursday And as you quite rightly said it actually turns in a sense the logistical burden onto the consumer
2: i think the bit that's probably changed forever is if you look at online grocery shopping mm. um broadly that's doubled in the last six months in the uk big picture and I think that will probably stay quite elevated because a lot of people have discovered that's incredibly convenient to have yeah. all of your shopping delivered at home. And environmentally, that can work as well. So if the drop densities are right, then it can actually be more green than everybody going individually to the supermarket. But but I, I think where the cap may well be is on how many direct consumer companies you really want to have a relationship with. And I have some that I value incredibly strongly. Nespresso would be one that, if you took that away from me, I would scream like crazy. But there are other ones in my life that from a, um, a hassle point of view, I would happily get rid of.
1: No, it's interesting, isn't it? Nespresso is one of those companies which um, uh, is, is I, I, th- I always describe it as a piece of behavioural genius because, of course, you're paying 50 pence for a cup of coffee that you make yourself at home. Now, if you had to buy it in a jar like Nescafe, you'd look at the price per unit of caffeine and a jar would be about 35-40 pounds. You go, "No oh, way." But of course, your comparative frame is with Starbucks, it's not with Nescafe. So it's a brilliant example of a behavioral pro, or, you know, a psychological product in that um, I, even though I know that objectively. I still think every time I put the 40p in, well, it would have cost you £2.40 at Starbucks. You know, what are you complaining about? And um, it is it is an extraordinary, uh, I mean, one of those really, really, interesting case actually of a huge company producing a completely um, outlier innovation, I think. Um, although, I mean, I think you can quote quite a few bits of category creation yourself, in fairness. Um, so part of p ethos is being a force for good and a force for growth how do you go around diversifying product lines in your product portfolio with keeping both of those uh, principles in mind? And um, what's what's your approach to innovation? You have this, as you said, you have this incredibly high bar, which I didn't realise. I know that you won't won't allow anything to go to market unless it has basically manifest uh, functional superiority as well. Um, So before you get into any marketing debate, there has to be some component of the product which is, uh, uh, genuinely, uh, objectively
2: better. Um,
1: uh, w- w- what makes your approach to innovation
2: different? I think innovation innovation is definitely a big word. It, it comes from all sorts of different ways. I mean, I think the most classic innovation is things like I talked about with that uh, the Gillette Innovation Centre, where you observe attention. By the way, one of my one of my favourite mm-hmm. ones at the moment in the UK is fifty percent of UK homes have a dishwasher. And of the people who use a dishwasher, about half of them, before they put anything in the wash dishwasher, they wash it themselves first. Now they call it they call it rinsing, but really it's just another way of nuts! washing it first. Total it, waste it, it, of water. It, it is a total waste of water and a total waste of their time as well. So, but you step back from it and you go, okay, if I can observe that tension, so I can observe the behaviour of people washing things twice, and I go, okay, I can make a product which means that that's not necessary. So you can, you know. Uh, cook your lasagna. You can take the dish straight off from having served from it. Put it in the dishwasher. Don't rinse it first. Stick it in there. If the product is right, then we can guarantee that we can clean that lasagna dish. So that's a classic. Observe attention. Uh, make a fairies the, the the dishwasher one that we have. You make you make that. You make an amazing product. Life is good. But innovation isn't always like that. So sometimes you hear about stuff. One of the ones that we heard in the UK is there are about um, seven hundred thousand babies born a year in the UK. 60,000 of them, so one in 13 or so are born prematurely, and of them, some really prematurely. And they end up in an incubator, of course, and they end up in there for about 23 hours per day. And one of the things we heard about was from um, the amazing uh, nurses who work in that environment, that if a nappy leaks in an incubator, it's an absolute crisis because you've got to unplug everything that you've plugged that tiny child up to in order to change it over. And literally, you, you risk um, life when you do that. So we figured out that, OK, that's an innovation opportunity as well. And we make a nappy for tiny babies. And of course, that isn't a business. And thank thank goodness it isn't a business because there aren't enough babies who are born at that stage. So that's one of the ones that we just um, make them and, and give them away. Um, but it's it, it's something that you hear about happening in society and then go after. And I guess the last group of innovation I, I talk about is stuff that you discover by accident. And I think the most famous example here is, is BlueTac, which isn't one of mine. But there's a great story about the fact that the guy who invented Blue tac was setting out to do something completely different that day. And occasionally you do get those kind of stories emerging. So we have a group up in Newcastle and there's a, a scientist up there, a guy called Phil Souter, who was meant to be making a new washing detergent. And so he's, um, I'm not an R&D specialist, you'll quickly discover Rory, so he's messing around in the lab with a bucket with muck in it and a chemical in the middle of it, which is designed to attract the muck towards the the chemical in the middle of it, supposedly making a detergent. But in the middle of this process, Phil realises that he's discovered a process where he can take uh, dirty water and turn it into clean, drinkable water, which of course has got nothing to do with washing detergents anymore. And so that one, we, we actually turned that into a not-for-profit business for creating safe drinking water. Because when we went into the numbers, you find there are about um, 700 million people who don't have access to safe drinking water. Now, what they really need is a well in the village wherever they live. But until you can get them a well, you have to find a kind of bridge solution. So we have this thing that uh, is out there and we've um, we've made um, tens of billions of safe drinking water available through a piece of innovation that happened entirely by accident. So that was a long answer to your question, but I think innovation happens in all sorts of different ways across that spectrum.
1: Actually, funnily enough, I think the role of luck in business, we... Uh, I'm quite friendly with Nassim Taleb, and his point is with life, is that it isn't just about being right and then optimising what you know. It's actually increasing your surface area exposure to luck, that you can actually plan without knowing how you're going to get lucky. And I often avata- argue the large part of advertising works this way, that simply by being more famous, it's more likely that you're exposed to positive opportunities, even though you could never predict them in advance. And actually, uh, business is great because the very fact, actually, that, that, you know, in some cases, I mean, some cases, great businesses are founded by total idiots. Right. I mean, actually, the, the Walmart was kind of founded by people who are mad, but sometimes they're kind of stupid enough to stumble on something. I mean, no logical company would have launched Red Bull. Is my argument because it tastes horrible costs a fortune comes in a tiny can there's no way a large organization could cope with the sheer illogicality that is that product and yet you know they can run a formula one team for the lols you know and actually nasim taught me this thing that the very fact that business has a mechanism that rewards luck not necessarily quality of thinking is actually not a bug it's a feature just as medicine, you need to accept the fact that half of the medical advances, penicillin being the most famous, happened in a sense almost by accident. And there are fantastic brands which merge. Two of them are uh, the Flight Bar which actually was caused by a chocolate overflow at the Flake factory. And Walls Vienetta, fabulously, they had sheets of ice cream going onto a conveyor belt. And something went wrong with the conveyor belt, which caused it to judder, which then caused the sheets of ice cream to form into this kind of fantastic wave formation. <laughs> and, and the Walls Vionetta was born. And actually, the fact that actually, you know, having what you might call, as you quite rightly spotted, I think it's lovely that people looking at people shave and saying you notice something new, that kind of anthropological approach to business or the kind of, uh, my, Robert Frank calls it an economic naturalist, that you just go and you keep looking and you say, why are people, Why the hell are people doing this? Now, I suppose if you live alone, rinsing your dishwasher plates might make sense if you only put the dishwasher on once a week. But you're absolutely right. I've noticed this behaviour in everybody else and I'm kind of going... <laughs> you know why don't you buy a dishwasher if you're going to do half the work yourself you know and um that's that's re- that whole business of observing there's a wonderful thing in biology matt ridley told me which is biology is a science of exceptions and i think what we often get wrong in business is we're trying to use big data or ai to give us universal laws as if it's physics and actually, the best thing to do is we ought to be using AI as artificial inquisitiveness, not artificial intelligence. Which is going, can you just tell us ten anomalies? You know, please, out of this data, just come up with ten things that seem really weird, and then we'll do the rest of it. We'll find out what's going on. And and actually, that weird quest for certainty, I think, often misleads us. That the real gains come from come from the edges in a way, not from the middle. So. <laughs> I, I, I,
2: it's interesting as well. The, um, the, the favourite word you said in the middle of there was observational as well. Yeah. Because, and um, you only learn if you're looking for these things, and, um, and the observations can be so, so powerful. I, I give you two stories for your wonderful collection on that. One is um, in the UK, uh, we read an article and it said in uh, UK schools, uh, the rate of exclusion, so uh, a pupil being suspended, hits a 10 year high. And you say, OK, right, what's behind that? What kind of kids are being affected? And do we have any role to play in that at all? And don't get me wrong, I'm not an idealist. I, I get that I run a, um, a collection of brands and I'm not changing the world every day. But you go, they, they can have to that, to that question on force for good. They can have tiny effects on society. And when we looked at the kids who were getting excluded, we figured out there was something that we could do with the Gillette brand. And we did a partnership with an amazing, quite small charity called Football Beyond Borders, who, who who do what you think they would do. But we also linked it with Raheem Sterling, who is an amazing role model, I think, to a lot of kids in tough situations in the UK right now. And we put this collaboration together. But back to your comment, it's all based on observation. And that observation is no different to the observation that you can make of, um, you know, for example, what's the most common reason for a child to end up in a hospital in the UK? And the answer to that is a tooth extraction. And then you work back from that and say, okay, what role can an electric toothbrush, Oral-P is the one that we operate, what role can that one play in it? And so uh, all of these tiny observations can somehow be put together. It's not by accident that the favorite comedian of all of us in the UK is Michael McIntyre, who it strikes me, his entire humor is based on observational comedy. So um, looking at things powerfully is a good thing I would suggest.
1: I did an interview with Jimmy Carr, who said exactly the same thing. He said, what do comedians do? We notice things. You know, there's well, I, I I was particularly loved the observation of Michael McIntyre, which I think is fantastic and insightful, which is when a restaurant brings you a glass of wine, they pour it, and then they get you to smell it to check that it's okay. She's imagine if they did that with a jug of milk. You know, they came they to you, you <laughs> ordered coffee, and they come along with a jug of milk. And they say, I think this might be a bit off. I'm not sure. What, what do you think? You know, and you realise what an absurd thing that is. That you can serve wine without being confident that it's okay to drink, um, and I, th- I totally agree that it's actually those peculiar little. I mean, uh, one of the things that's been fascinating me at the moment, which is relevant to the subject of subscription is I met the founder of Gusto at a, an event where I was speaking. And he um, said, well, I, you know, he got in touch with me later and said, And by the way, I'll send you a Gusto box so you can try it for yourself. And obviously I'm not going to turn down free food. And equally it would have seemed a bit rude to say, I, I don't want your stinking box of food, right? So I said, yeah, of course, you know, I'll be delighted to receive it. And at the time I thought it was a completely ridiculous concept because I go, well, I don't get it because, I, you know, I've got, 17 cookbooks at home with recipes in them that have usually been given to me as presents and are totally given to my wife as presents are totally unread, okay? But I've got the recipes, I can order on a cardo and I can make the food already, what's the difference? And then I got the first Gusto box and it was totally transformative because you end up having four pretty much restaurant plus quality meals Every week, because somehow the simultaneity of it solves a behavioral problem that when the exact right ingredients arrive along with the recipe, you end up making the food. When it's left, unless you're a spectacular planner, I've got one friend who will actually sit down and go, on Thursday, I thought I might make that Claudia Rosen recipe. So I will now order the ingredients in advance. I'm a big Indian food fan, which makes it even more complicated, because, of course, you have a weird mix of spices and herbs, typically. And the odds of you having all of them in stock is, is quite low. But I've become a complete convert. Um, And uh, my daughter, who's now at university, has gone 50-50 with a friend of hers to do a a fortnightly Gusto subscription. And everybody and my colleagues who I introduced the product to, um, uh, actually eight of them, all but one, has become, again, a complete total convert.
0: That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. I do think there's this
1: interesting thing, which is, it's Bill Gates said, the trouble nowadays is people don't know how to want the things we can offer them. And that quite a lot of business problems are actually marketing problems in disguise, that when placed on paper, the case for Gusto seems fairly feeble. And if I'd been asked to invest in it, I probably would have been fairly sceptical. And it's only when you discover it, it's only when you experience it, that you realise, ah, this is totally different. What it's doing is it's generating a behaviour through effectively it solves the coordination problem for me i guess and i find that so interesting because you realize that i would argue i mean you know it sounds a bit self-serving for both of us to say this but most social and business problems in many cases are marketing and now marketing problems in disguise and the solar panels what we really need isn't cheaper more efficient panels we need people to put them on the bloody roof you know and so, uh, you know, it's very, very interesting, that question. Of, and I, I think where p g is fundamentally different, you believe in fairness to give them their due and uh, a few other large players. But in most companies, marketing plays a very subordinate role and is viewed as a cost, not as a source of value creation. And so marketing creativity gets frozen out of the solution space. And I, th- I think the fact that every single P and G decision, the consumer is in the room, metaphorically,
2: makes just an enormous difference. Yeah, and um, she, she or he should always be in the room uh, mm. in in any decision that you're taking. You know, on your on your gusto story, the thing one research technique that we use a lot is called deprivation study, and that's where you give people a product, you listen to what they say about it but what you really measure is how they feel about it when you take it away again. And that's often much, much more informative than what they tell you while they're using it. And the runaway products which make the big, biggest difference within our portfolio would be the ones which score the highest within a deprivation study. But on marketing, marketing's got a tremendous role to keep evolving and is yeah. crucial to our business. And again, it comes back to observations that you can make. My, um, I have um, three kids and two of them are girls, And one of my favourite marketing observations that we've had in the last couple of years is that a girl is twice as likely as a boy to give up sport when they hit puberty. And you just think through the implications of that on women in so many different ways. And then you think, to, OK, what role can a brand play in quietly shaping that story? And that's where the work that we did on um, Always Like a Girl came from was really from a really small observation like that, but a very important observation and then building out of it. And again, um, you know, uh, we won't change society, but we can mildly shape it through the different ways that we show things. Even things like um, one of my favourite adverts as well is um, the Flash Dog Advert, which you may have seen, where um, it sings Flash R. By the way, I should tell you, and, and please don't, don't let this go out with a podcast, but I try and sneak an 80s song into my advertising at least once per year. I just think it's important. Spandau Ballet, uh, You Are Bold, is another one that we have at the moment. Anyway, I digress. Yeah, so we can, yeah um, the flash advert, we, we show a, a man washing the floor deliberately. Or if we show a Pampers advert, we will always try and make sure we've got a male and a female in there or even a same sex couple in there. And people can say, oh, you've gone so woke and you're so right on. No, we're just trying to reflect what society is and reflect it accurately. Otherwise, you're shoving society in the wrong direction. And it's all sorts of things. It's things that people will see, like uh, the the man in the flash advert, but it's also things behind it. So our hair care business, for example, we're working on how do we get to 100% of directors being female? Because primarily that advertising is going towards women. And we just think it's right that on that particular brand, we go in that direction, not the whole portfolio, but that particular area. So there are lots of different things you can do to uh, play an active and, and mildly helpful role in society. I think. Do You think it
1: wasn't your responsibility? This, I mean, you, you probably can't say, but I, mean, I thought the the Gillette. This is as a fifty five year old white male. Just to be clear about this, I thought the Gillette piece slightly over pushed it, um, and and my my only objection, which my wife slightly agreed with me on, we ended up having a massive discussion about this. Was, um. Two, two things, I think. One, it kind of conflated behaviours which are debatable, like young boys wrestling with each other with the Me Too movement, which I think was a bit of an unfair... I thought that was a bit of a stretch to suggest... Because, I mean, if you look, you know, I mean, as, as kind of amateur evolutionary psychologist, young animals engage in play fighting in tonnes and tonnes of mammalian species, and it seems to be kind of innate that you have these kind of play scraps... And then what you know? Don't get me wrong. If the guy had been wailing the other guy with a baseball bat, I would have been entirely with you. But it was kind of what would have been defined as a bit of a scrap. And there were a couple of elements in that which I thought were possibly trying to put too broad a message into one thing. How did that go down?
2: Um, I'm uh, good on you for asking the question, and I, um, contrary to your setup, I will answer it really honestly because. Uh, <laughs> oh. uh, because I'm from Yorkshire and I don't know any other way. So um, the, um, the, the, the that advert, it, cr- it created a huge amount of controversy. Uh, it, it definitely did. It's also, interestingly, the advert that we get asked the most often by schools or church groups or youth clubs or whatever it is to share a bit of information on so that they can talk to kids about it. And do you know what? I think that's kind of a good thing when an advert provokes a conversation. And the heart of that advert is... Um, are men always the best version of men that they could be? I think that's a really, really good question. And the the piece I'd encourage you is um, have a look at the follow-up that we did in the UK. So there's a sequel to the the advert that we had globally. There's a, a sequel one that we did, which is actually the one with Raheem Sterling that I mentioned earlier. And it was exactly the same thought behind it, which is all men need to be the best version of men that they can and an appropriate version of men for the world that we live in today. And it didn't cause any of the controversy, um, but had exactly the same message behind it. So I I, I honestly feel like it was a good message. Uh, it, it did create a, an awful lot of email traffic.
1: No, and interestingly, actually, I think the, the where things where I think there's a problem is where um, we get... Con- and we've probably made this mistake on Dove a few times, by the way, at Ogilvy, where you stray from being campaigning to being politicising. And... You know, to quote Michael Jordan, Republicans buy sneakers too. Um, uh, it's not generally, I don't think it's a good. I, I mean, for very good Byron Sharp reasons, it ain't a good idea for brands to get actually into politics. Because, you know, uh, there are exceptions, newspaper brands are inevitably in that space. But for the most part, uh, unless you're a news brand, perhaps, or a kind of as a spectator, for example, or the new statesman. I don't, I don't think that's a great idea, because you wouldn't want to, why alienate 50% of your base? But I, I also think there's a huge lesson, and funnily enough, I've, I've given a kind of talk to during lockdown. One of the great things about Zoom is you have conversations you probably wouldn't have had in the real world. I had a conversation with Extinction Rebellion, and I just said, look, I've never seen an advertising campaign where people set out to annoy or insult the users of a competitor's product. OK, because they're your future customers. I said, look, when you're on a demonstration, do not spray fuck off on a war memorial, <laughs> right? Because that sets you back. OK, I get it. It probably feels great to do that. It impresses the 27 people who are standing around you who are similarly extremist in their motivation. But a terrible proxy for how successful you're being is the extent to which you're actually alienating other people. Generally, if you want this thing to succeed. And I think marketing... Uh, you know, I, I think it's genuinely important for marketing people to say, "Look, look, I don't disagree with I don't disagree with your aims at all." I'm generally actually pretty pro-environmental. Um, uh, for a person on the centre right, I'm very pro-environmental. I just partly actually just on aesthetic grounds. I think it's just a more elegant way to live your life. You know, this isn't all about you know self-sacrifice. It's it's just an aesthetic question of you know, the, you know it, it's kind of it's rather like Nordic aesthetics in um, in interior decoration, isn't it? You know, it's, you know, that kind of Nordic minimalistic approach is just more attractive in all sorts of ways. And yet, um, one of the things I always say is look, if I disagree with your methods, it doesn't mean I disagree with your eggs. <laughs> and I think marketers have a huge role to play here. And I don't, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to stamp over the kind of um, purpose-led thing. And I also think, by the way, the other really important question about purpose is is not only the consumer, it's the employee. And, you know, I would be a very sad person indeed if I said I got out of bed every morning and started work with the WPP shareholders in mind, you know, because contrary to Milton Friedman, most of us aren't really motivated by shareholder enrichment. I mean, if your bonus is so enormous that it's actually well correlated, maybe you are. But I mean, you know, you can't reasonably
2: expect, I mean, you must employ, what, a hundred and something thousand people worldwide, do you? Yeah, and they're an incredibly uh, important voice. It's a, one, of the, <clears> one of the things, um, I, it always amuses when people start talking about generations and they say generation X this, generation Y that. And I say someday this will come back to haunt us when we try and brand a generation a particular way. But one thing that I do agree with is that the employees that we bring into the office today are... Um, even more keen to play a useful role in society than they were 20 years ago. And they drive us to do some great things. As an example, during the pandemic, I have an employee who is um, an emergency first responder. So that means if you or I go down with a heart attack and he's the nearest person, he's coming before the ambulance. He, whilst working in the NHS, which he does outside of work, he had this observation, which is as they started wearing masks on the front line, you can't get a perfect seal between a mask and a face if you've got a beard. And he said, okay, uh, interesting, tell me more. He said, okay, we've got to give razors to the whole of the NHS. So we had to think about that for a minute and said, yeah, okay, yeah, that's that's doable. So during the pandemic, we gave away 90,000 razors to NHS frontline workers. And one thing that I said to the group at the beginning was, we're not going to beat our chests about this. So we're not going to do an advert going, we've done this. We're just going to get on with it and do it because it's what people expect another example is um we, you know, we get an awful lot of contacts from charities who would like us to help them in some way and the uk has got an incredible tapestry of tiny frontline charities like think six seven eight thousand frontline charities think of you know the homeless shelter that's near you and and it's probably run by you know one passionate person with a handful of volunteers and pragmatically I haven't got the, the resources to deal with them all one-on-one, but there's an amazing charity that we work with called InKind Direct who basically supply products to all of those, think homeless shelters or whatever else it is. And so at the start of the pandemic, they came to us and said, no, crikey, the, the, the world's got very, very tough. What can you guys do? And you work through that and say, with employees, what can you do differently? And a great example on there was um, in Reading, we make um, shave preps. So the, the shave gel or the shave foam that you put on your face before you shave. And we converted a production line. So, okay, instead of making that, it's going to take the World Health Organisation formula for hand sanitizer, and it's going to make hand sanitizer instead. And it's not, funnily enough, desperately complicated chemistry. And then we were able to, through the work the employees did there, feed that into In-Kind Direct. We didn't sell any of this stuff, by the way. We just gave it away. You feed it to In-Kind Direct and now the homeless shelter has got hand sanitizer. It's also got a mask that we were able to make up in Manchester where we make pampers um, and it'll have some other PNG products that we've given away because in doing so you somehow help the homeless guy feel a you know a moment of dignity which is really important. So lots of things that you can do, but they all start off with employees who are the best activists in the world. By
1: the way, I did two two very interesting things on that. One of which is the fact that masks don't fit if you're wearing. A, uh, if you have a beard or a huge moustache, is actually the origin of Hitler's toothbrush moustache. So uh, I don't, I, I'm not suggesting for a second that you should have tried to bring back the toothbrush moustache because I think that ship has kind of sailed. To be absolutely honest, but the reason was that during World War One, if you wore a gas mask, you see. Uh, so soldiers would have a toothbrush moustache or a very small moustache because any larger facial hair wouldn't work with a gas mask in the trenches during World War I. And so a few people, including Hitler, carried the fashion forward. Um, and subsequently, it fell out of favour for some strange reason. Um, but th- that, that's a, um, that, this is really interesting. So you gave every NHS worker a, 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 a razor. I'm, I'm also interested, actually, as a bloke, um, the importance, by the way, of that The importance of shaving actually, as a way of starting, because under lockdown, I've been, you know, you must have noticed your sales fell off a little bit. I think it's fair to predict. Okay. Um, uh, The importance of of that is there is a psychological importance to actually getting dressed and, you know, and shaved in the morning, which changes your whole approach. I don't know why, but. You know, there's that argument, you know, in a sense, getting dressed for work, you know, wearing a suit or whatever it is you wear for work, you know, it, it has, it, it's largely performative, but it does have some psychological importance, I think. And actually, we should investigate things like that more because there's a single daily action, which may actually, I mean, those people who look at, um, uh, for example, behavior change will always say how you start the day really, really matters. If you, if, um, I, I, I'm just trying to remember. It must be B.J. Fogg's book, I suppose. Tiny habits, I suppose. Um, uh, the idea that creating tiny habitual actions like that might have importance in areas like mental health. I, I don't think we should look at that as ludicrous by any means. I think it's it's, it's plausible because I have noticed that when I you know when I let things go a bit, which to be honest I have done because Zoom, nobody can smell anybody else bit blunt about it. Um, uh, you do feel kind of declining levels of so, I don't know alertness or something and and um, actually these things may be more you know just as in a weird way we clean our teeth because we're frightened of bad breath and it has a sideline benefit which is dental health. you know that always fascinates me because if you think about it all toothpaste is mint flavored. A lot of people don't even like the taste of mint, but if you want your breath and your mouth to feel fresh, nothing does it like mint. And so our motivation for doing it is actually different from the official purpose. And so that that the exploration of shaving as that kind of you know useful act. Um I, I, I think there's there's anthropological gold somewhere to be found, I think. So fast this is absolutely fascinating.
2: I'm glad you kept shaving through lockdown. Um, you're right, yeah. some people did stop, but um- but at the same time, if they uh, they stopped shaping, they started new habits. And some of the most interesting new habits that came out were, and I'm sure this was in your house as well as my house, as well as many houses in the UK, is people started cleaning doorknobs, which was never a thing before. They started cleaning light switches, which was never a thing before. They uh, cleaned parcels when they came in from Amazon yeah. or whoever was delivering them. And the most in- interesting one was the number of people who um, – uh, came in through the door and entirely stripped and then stuck all of their stuff straight into the washing machine. So, all sorts of new habits have emerged in the last six months. And, you know, uh, yeah, the, actually, I was talking to
1: someone on Unilever um, Home Care about that. And then generally, the temperature setting went up on the washing machine as well, which all, which also has environmental consequences. I'm not, Over the early days of the pandemic, you simply took every precaution you possibly could. So, we seem to have stopped worrying so much about contact infection, don't we? that we seem to have now assumed that it's airborne and i think I, I think it is true to say that now we know that there aren't really cases of people where it's been transmitted by surface contact I hope, I hope that's scientifically safe. For God's sake, nobody act on that. No, um, don't
2: act. Don't, no, act, don't act on that. Don't but, act yeah. on that. It's a short answer. I, mean, I think um, as well, like y- y- you have to realise that coronavirus is still in its very early stages of scientific understanding. And so yeah. um, everyone is still learning about how it's transmitted and, and how it's killed, you know, to one of your, to, to the point that you raised on, on washing as well, I, I often end up in a discussion on you know, how do you improve the, environmental footprints of of what you do and the the number of items that you sell and actually thinking about how things are uh, used in their end state is incredibly important so on your washing machine we um uh, um, the the, the wash that i use in my house is a a 15 minute wash cycle because i know the chemistry of the product the png product that i'm using so that on on an aerial product it's formulated it'll work in a 15 minute wash and then 15 minutes that's a cold wash and there are two benefits one is environmentally if you can wash in 15 minutes instead of an hour or an hour and a half it's obviously using a lot less energy so that's better for the planet on the in-use cycle but the other one is it makes the task of washing less burdensome if um, you know if you have to do six washes loads in a day which is not that uncommon if they're on a 15 minute cycle you don't feel like you're washing all day you feel like you got it done in whatever that is an hour and a half which kind of matters I have um, a 17 year old son and his sports kit you know it really really does smell but it'll still come out in a 15 minute wash, uh, even in a cold temperature, if you're using the right products. And, and it's really important. Um, it's important from a sustainability point of view, but it's also important from a that means I'm washing for less of the day.
1: Because I was saying one of the really important things we've got to do is um, do you put in those Lenore scented capsules as well?
2: Does that help? I'm a, I'm a big fan of the Lenore scented capsules. Yeah, no, 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 me too. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, <laughs> I just, I just, I just... By the way, the, the reason they're really good is uh, if you think about gym kits, gym kits made out of, tends to be made out of different materials, and some of those are less good with a fabric conditioner. So the gym kit challenge is how do you clean it, and then how do you make sure the perfume's right before you go back into the gym, assuming they let us into the gyms again soon. Uh, anyway, the, the Lenore beads that you're thinking of there are a great uh, solution to that one.
1: So you can actually do it in 15 minutes at, what, 30 degrees? And you find that even for sports kit, that's basic. Because my problem is that I was saying this earlier, funnily enough, that the choice architecture of washing machines is a mess because 60 degrees is kind of in the middle and people tend to default it's called the goldilocks effect people tend to default to the one in the middle and i was saying that we need to get onto washing machine manufacturers and have them set literally cold wash lukewarm wash then 20 degrees then 30 then 60 then you label 90 degrees like crime scene cleanup or something <laughs> you know yeah that's purely that's purely for serial killers
2: you know all these little life hacks are so important though like forgive me if cut, i'm very passionate about this one one of my favorite ones is on dishwashers so people assume that a dishwasher uses a load of energy and a load of water because of course you close the door and you've no idea what's going on there uh, on average if you're if you've got eight items that you need to wash up you're going to use less energy and water sticking them in the dishwasher than you are running them underneath a the tap with um with, with the products and everything else it's actually better to use the dishwasher but nobody knows this because nobody can see inside the dishwasher and to your comment earlier on washing machines, that we have to encourage people to turn the dial right down and stick it on a short cycle. It'll be fine. Life's good.
1: There are three things like that. Interestingly, um, a washing machine also uses less water than hand washing. It's completely counterintuitive. I was talking to Unilever's uh, head of home care about this and everybody assumes that a washing machine must use more water because, of course, you see, you hear it going in at the beginning, but actually they're quite miserly. And the other strange one is the waste disposal unit, where actually it's much better for the planet to have food waste decompose um, anaerobically underwater than it is to put it on landfill but because it's a technology we assume it's wasteful which i think is a it's a it's a heuristic we've got to fight against all the time um yes. but, because washing machines are remarkably parsimonious in water use as well fascinatingly and so dishwasher of course as you said you don't even have a window so you, it's the pity really i'd love to have a dishwasher with a window but um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but um, so you assume that the thing is effectively churning water in every minute it's in operation and of course it's it's using the same water to a large extent and this is this is actually great do you know the beauty of the fabric conditioner drawer which uses a which uses a siphon it's ingenious because when it squirts water in on top of the fabric conditioner essentially if you put too much fabric conditioner in you actually form a seal and the whole thing siphons through so the way fabric conditioner drawers work is they sit there, and then it adds a small dosage of water, which rises the liquid up to a level where a natural siphon effect takes over, and it all drops. It's an utterly beautiful, beautiful thing. You can go and watch a YouTube video on the um, uh, the siphon effect of the of the fabric conditioner drawer, and you'll never look at your washing machine in the same way again. <laughs> so, but but other than making this, which I would love to actually, as a because I'm a total dishwasher nerd as well. Um, they have asked me to ask a question about preparation for Brexit, given that you've got responsibility for Northern Europe. Um, what, what do you anticipate going forwards in terms of that? Is it true that large companies, to some extent, had this sorted to begin with, or are there significant challenges remaining?
2: if you think about the supply chain, it's obviously quite complicated. And um, as soon as you start to think about bringing the number of products that there are in a supermarket through a border... Uh, and through a port when you don't really know what's going to be happening at that port in six weeks' time, that's quite a complicated risk that we are working through uh, and have been working through for over a year now. Um, So we have a contingency plan for everything that we think could logically go wrong, and then we work out how we make sure that those things don't result in any effect on the people who go and buy our products in a store. And we have a plan for all of it, but in the words of Mike Tyson, everyone has a plan until... Um, they get thumped in the face. So, um, you know, I I, I say we have a plan with a reasonable amount of confidence, but you can never give people complete certainty on it. I think the thing that's frankly more challenging on Brexit is, you know, companies need to deal with that complexity and that's my problem to work through and make sure I've got a plan in place for. The thing that I worry an awful lot more about is the combined economic effect of a year that we spent dealing with COVID as a nation and you add Brexit to that and, and the implications that it could have economically. We don't know what they are, but it, that, that it could have. And I really worry about um, consumers being very pinched in 2021. So frankly, that worries me 10 times more than the port disruption that we'll see. We'll probably see some port disruption. We might see some regulatory disruption, some foreign exchange disruption. Those are all things that um, you know we can work through and deal with. Uh, the one that's the hardest to deal with is is if the consumer is really really pinched, and I I fear that they will be. It's very
1: interesting, isn't it? Because it's not a problem you can where you can solve for the average, because consumers are affected actually very very differently, um, and it's been, the effects have been incredibly uneven. Um, both, I mean, actually health effects, of course, are incredibly uneven, but but the economic effects have been just as uneven, and also, of course, people behave it's very, very dangerous to solve for the average because people behave in all sorts of interesting ways. In the, in many cases, of course, in brands of your kind, you sometimes see a flight to quality, don't you? That people, that in other words, brands of your kind now play a greater part in people's mindset. And so actually people are more ready to pay a price premium for those everyday products. And then, I mean, I, mean, I suppose we can all be grateful we don't work in the business travel sector or the conference business where i think it's not just the economic changes i think we've created new behavioral norms which aren't going to go away i suppose that, i suppose that is true in the consumer sector so for example you, your prediction is that online grocery shopping is going to isn't going to fall back to the, it'll, it'll fall back but it was always known when i worked with ocado that if you can get people to do it three times basically they're a bit hooked because it's one of those things, it's an experience good. You only, because of course, if you think about it, the first time you shop for groceries online, it's actually a royal pain in the ass because you've got to find everything. And, you know, it'd be easier to crawl over broken glass to your local Tesco. And it's only the third or fourth time where you realise, good God, most of the time I buy the same thing that I buy every, every time. So actually I can just look at my favourites and look at your recommendations. And I can do pretty much a weekly shop in 10 minutes. The first time takes an hour. And so it is a case where necessity, I think, has driven people to discover a new behaviour which will subsequently stick. So that's, that's something of huge relevance to you, I suppose, which is shopping patterns are going to change. And, um, uh, you know, essentially, I suppose, uh, how you market things and, uh, and actually behaviour behavior is fundamentally different, isn't it, when people choose on a screen?
2: Yeah, I think uh, on on your disruption comment, um, I, I agree with you. There are some sectors of the economy which have been disrupted far, far more, and the, the airline industry is a great example yeah. of that. But even the retailers, where most of our products are sold, have been disrupted in in significant ways. So, if your online business has doubled, uh, for say a Tesco, that's that's a lot to work through for them. Uh, in the same way, if high street footfall's down forty percent, then that's a big challenge for um, the retailers who are there. So. There's there's different degrees of disruption all the way through the sector, on on value um, and and price. Like the brands only work if they are worth paying. That uh, uh, if the product the product price proposition really really works. So, you know, fairy washing up liquid is more expensive than an own label product, but equally its performance is 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 a long way ahead of it, and that's why it works. It's very interesting. Yeah. So I mean. You, you generally believe
1: that in most cases you have a product where the the economic case assuming you factor quality in and, and in case of fairy liquid of course just quantity um generally wins in any case and uh broadly speaking i think consumers still stick to the heuristic that you get what you pay for how much do sort
2: of deep discounters like lidl and aldi frighten you uh they definitely don't frighten me um they are i mean they're incredibly strong retailers and doing a great job within the uk um but you know it, it's it's it, in some ways it's for png to be a little bit agnostic on this point because um the way that i would think about it is my first job is to make sure that the the, the consumer the person who used the product in the end is getting terrific value i also have a job to make sure that the retailer as a proposition from P&G that works for them because otherwise, why would they do business with P&G? So, you know, we need to create a a value proposition for a retailer and a value proposition for the end user, the consumer of a product. And we need to have an eye on both of those. um, And we always will.
1: Perfect. What a wonderful place to end. Well, it's been absolutely fantastic to talk to you. Um, I really enjoyed it. it. Me too. It's been an utter joy. Thank you very much for your time, which must have huge demands on it. That's all for this episode of On Brand, I'm afraid, but this podcast is brought to you by Alf Insight. For more information on powering your business growth, you simply visit the website alfinsight.com, which is A-L-F-Insight, all one word, .com. This series is produced and marvelously edited by the lovely people at Ultimate Sound and Vision. And all I need now to do is to ask that uh, you please subscribe to make sure you receive the next episode. And if you've enjoyed what you've heard, um, then um, tweak our algorithms in our favor by giving us a little like. So thank you very much for listening. Here's till next time. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen